Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. And our guest this evening is Montana Governor Steve Bullock. Tonight we'll be getting to know the Democratic candidate and where he stands on key issues. At the start of our show, I'll be asking Governor Bullock some questions, and then after a break, we'll have our studio audience ask their questions in a town hall format. But before we begin with that, let's take a quick look at the candidate's biography. Steve Bullock was born in 1966 in Missoula, Montana, and grew up in Helena, where he graduated from public schools. He has an undergraduate degree from Claremont McKenna College in California and a law degree from Columbia University Law School. Bullock was then a labor attorney and led a successful citizens initiative in Montana to raise the minimum wage. In 2008, he was elected as a Democrat to be the attorney general of his state. As the AG, Bullock challenged the Citizens United campaign finance decision all the way to the Supreme Court. He won election as governor in 2012 and was re-elected in 2016 when President Trump won Montana by 20 points. As governor, Bullock expanded Medicaid, froze college tuition, and worked to preserve Native American language and culture. He has also vetoed more bills than any governor in Montana history. Governor Bullock is married, has three children, and still lives in his hometown. Governor, thanks for joining us on Conversation with Canada. It's great to be with you, Adam. Right, thanks for having me you. this morning. So you're not going to be on the big debate stage uh, this evening um, in Miami. Uh, is that a fair decision by the DNC, and what's the impact to your campaign? Well, I was certainly disappointed in the DNC's decision because part of it was looking at polling. And look, I only got into this five weeks ago. I had a job to do, governor. My legislature just ended, and I had to get Medicaid expansion reauthorized. So if I had to choose between, you know, chasing 100,000 donors or getting 100,000 people saving their health care, easiest choice I would ever make in my life. But we still have a long way to go throughout this election. And even though I'm not on that debate stage, I'm, you know, in the first in the nation primary. And the folks of New Hampshire are the ones that's going to decide these elections, not necessarily these debates or the party rules. So I'm really excited to be here with you this evening. We see a lot of attention being placed on President Trump, obviously, and Democratic candidates are saying that's not where it should be. We should focus on policy. But we do have voters who say they're going to be voting in this Democratic primary to look for the candidate who can beat President Trump. How do you reconcile those two things? Well, I think you can reconcile it. And is the only one in this field that actually won in a Trump state. He took Montana by 20. I won by four. 25 to 30 percent of my voters voted for Donald Trump. We have to win back some of those places that we lost. But it has to be more than just being against him. We have to give people a reason to believe that Democrats, or and I fundamentally believe that why I'm in this is because a whole lot of folks, this economy doesn't work for them. They're not, they're working harder, they're making less money. They look at the political system, it's captured by the dark money and outside spending. So they're like, why not? It doesn't work for them. So we have to not only talk about where Donald Trump is failing them, but give them a reason to believe that we can make their lives better. Tensions are escalating with Iran. The president has chosen to take the route of sanctions, averting uh, a military response. Do you agree with the way he's handled this so far? I do not. I mean, we are at a dangerous point right now, and it's been, become more dangerous because of the lack of strategy of this Trump administration. Like, let's be clear, Iran is a threat to Israel to the neighbors, to the region. But this maximum pressure idea, 
with no thought of strategy, long-term or short-term. What we've done is the allies that we need to count on to be step-by-step -step with us. We more or less rejected their efforts. They had put together the you know, nuclear agreement. And we're going it alone. Time again, this administration said, America first is America alone. How you deter Iran, certainly we have to have the ability to have military force, but there's no reason we should ever get there. The global community can keep Iran in check, and that's what had been happening until recently. So put the Iran deal back together word for word, or would you make any changes? Oh, I'd be happy to make some changes, but what we do know is from the time until recently, Iran had actually complied with the nuclear agreement, the JCPOA. There wasn't any further development of nuclear weapons. There was the allowance of inspectors. And we gotta make sure, because we are now escalating to a point of great danger. Now, Iran is not a good actor, but the way that we've dealt with this in the past and up until this point was actually bring in our allies and even some of our adversaries were keeping a check on Iran. Right now it's just Katie bar the door and our allies aren't even trusting us as far as what direction we might take. Let's shift to immigration. Right now a lot of attention being placed on the treatment of migrant children who are coming across the border. Uh, the system is being overwhelmed on the one hand, but on the other hand we're seeing these reports and the administration defending uh, not providing these children yeah. with toothbrushes, uh, sleeping areas where they can sleep where the lights are off and other amenities. Uh, I think uh, there was uh, someone, an American, who had been held hostage by Somalian pirates and he said even the Somalian pir pirates gave, gave me, him a toothbrush. Yeah, <laughs> gave me a toothbrush and uh, soap. So what's going on here? No, it is horrific. And no one that presents at our border should be treated like animals. And that's what this administration is doing. Now, they are being overwhelmed. But this is a humanitarian crisis. This isn't a crisis that should be dividing us by, as people or as a nation. We certainly need to provide the resources to help families and kids that come to the border. We shouldn't be ripping those families apart. But let's also recognize, like we are appropriating about a third of the aid to the Central American countries that we were even four years ago. So on the one hand, we're not providing assistance in country. And then once they get there, once they get to the border, we're treating them so inhumanely. Like we should treat everybody that comes to the border. That doesn't mean that they get to stay in America but with the human decency that we treat someone of our own family. You also have a failed system. I mean, you have 400 immigration judges for a caseload of about 780,000. You need to do structural reform, and we should be doing that as we also pull together a comprehensive plan for immigration reform. Quickly, as we wrap up here, if there have been human rights violations, do you think anyone in the administration or the federal government should face legal consequences? Well, I think that they should certainly be held accountable, but even more than saying, all right, who are we going to scream at? We've got to fix this, and we've got to fix this now, because the thought that you've got, you know, kids not even getting mattresses because they lost a lice comb was one of those. And we all saw that picture of that father and the daughter yesterday. And there's gotta be a way that we're making sure that we don't have to see those pictures of people literally dying because of a broken system. Governor Bullock, thanks for answering these questions. The tougher questions await though. It's coming. As we get back here after the break, we'll bring our studio audience into the conversation. Do stay with us. Life's beautiful moments, sunsets, landscapes, wildlife. That's WMUR's You Local Facebook group. Join this growing community and browse the stunning images captured by viewers like you. Or share your own. Get started at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash WMUR9.
Go to groups and join you local. See you there. Bring in our studio audience here of New Hampshire voters and their questions for Governor Bullock. I'll jump in with a follow-up and a social media question or two, but let's get things started with Joan Wentworth. Good evening, Governor. Good evening, Joan. Unlike many of the other candidates, you have not endorsed the Green New Deal resolution. So I would like to know, as president, what steps would you take to get the country back on track in addressing the challenges of climate change? Now, and thanks for the question, Joan, because it's important not just to me, but hopefully everyone throughout this state and our country. You know, the current Secretary of Interior said he doesn't lose sleep over climate change. As a father of three kids, as someone who's dealt with fire seasons now 78 days longer in the West than when I was growing up, I do lose sleep. We need to take immediate and durable steps. The IPCC, the scientists say that we need to be net zero emissions for the whole world by 2050. I think we can do it a lot earlier, 2040 or even before. Step one would be to turn around and say we need to rejoin the Paris Accords because we can't do this alone and we need to fully fund it. Look, not even the auto industry was asking for the removal of these fuel efficiency standards. We need to be investing at the federal level in both the most antiquated piece of machinery that we have in this country is the electrical grid. It can't even take all the renewable and solar that we need. But we also need to be investing in the ways for agriculture to change, to be able to actually become, uh, capture more of the emissions. And yeah, like the dairy producers is one example, are already well along that way. I think that we also got to recognize as we go down this path, the first George Bush, George H.W. Bush, said we are going to address the greenhouse effect with the White House effect. Here was a Republican president that said, we need to address climate change, and we'll do it from the great leadership of the top. Now Republicans won't even acknowledge that climate change is human caused because of the outside influence of spending in our elections. So I think that we need to actually have a path along the way. I think that the Green New Deal is an aspirational document of here's what we need to do. A four-page document is good. But we need a plan, and we need to actually get there long before, and I think we can before um, what the scientists say, that we have to be globally at a net zero. Thank you. Thank you very much. Quick follow on that, Governor. Is it realistic to eliminate fossil fuels from our energy system by 2050? Well... I think that, you know, there's been more technological change in our phones in the last five years than there has in how we produced energy in so many ways. So I'm not quite sure that we don't even need to necessarily, like all from gas and oil, we may not end up eliminating all fossil fuels even by then. But what we do know is each and every year, we got to take a billion tons of CO2 out of our environment if we're going to meet the IPCC goals. Now, China right now produces twice as much carbon as we do, so we can't do it alone. Certainly, and I've been also as governor of Montana, we've doubled our wind, we've quadrupled our solar. I've been the co-chair of the national, both wind and solar coalition, also been the lead in the last four or five years of a carbon capture group 
even now, sort of conservationists and scientists are saying, we've got to figure out a way actually to draw some of this CO2 out. So you may end up at a time in 2050 where, look, technology may make batteries in the next decade to the point where fossil fuels wouldn't even be profitable when we're even talking about oil and gas. But we, as we need to, like we've led as a country in so many different ways. China is investing more in renewable technology than we are. And we at the government level, at the federal level, is taking further and further steps back. That's not the way to lead. Email question coming in here from Sherry Schmidt. Uh, Governor Bullock, do you have a plan for what you'll do as President of the United States if the Democrats retake the White House but are unable to flip the Senate? How will you handle Majority Leader McConnell blocking critical legislation and pushing through partisan GOP nominees? No, and, and that's one. Thanks, Sherry, if you're watching this <laughs> evening by email. Um, but, but, but that's one that, look, my whole time as governor, I've gotten progressive things done, and my legislature is 60% Republican at best. When I first got in, it was two-thirds Republican. We've been able to expand health care to 100,000 Montanans. We passed the most progressive law when it comes to dark money in our elections, trying to make elections about people. We actually made it so that um, froze college tuition for six of the eight years I've been governor, have the fourth lowest tuition and fees. How I get that done in Montana is certainly I try to build working relationships with Republicans in our state legislature, but I can't just sit there in the state house. And I end up like when we got Medicaid expansion through, I think I went to every rural hospital in our state. And just for context, you could fit 15 New Hampshires in the state of Montana. So it's a, take a lot of travel, right? So I think that really, you know, that what we need to look at is it's not going to be enough as president to sit in DC and make the case to the senators. You actually have to make the case to the country. And I'd probably be spending as much time in Kentucky, in Senator McConnell's district, as I would be if that's who I needed to move to get things done. And I think that's what we've lost at times in Washington, D.C. And a different perspective as a governor is that I need to figure out ways to get people to work with me. But if they're unwilling to work with me, the ultimate boss of them is all of you. So I go directly to the districts and I talk to folks because most people in outside of either my state house or Washington DC actually wants government to function and to make a positive impact on their lives. And they don't like what they see when all there is is gridlock. Next question comes from Letter Moral. First of all, thank you for joining us tonight. You have been for approving the Affordable Care Act how would you take it from something many believe is unaffordable to yeah. affordable? Yeah, and, and thanks for the question, Leonard, because if you're like so many folks that I run into, right, you know that we need health care. But it is to the point where, you know, I was talking to a teacher who had to take a, another job just to pay for her insulin. And it's like, wait a minute, because that insulin was a third of the, her take-home salary. Like, really? We're making our educators work at night just to pay for health care. I think health care has to be accessible and affordable. Here's how I think that we could make it more affordable. First, to have a public option. So a Medicare for anyone that wants it, to be able to buy in. Second, which we pay more for prescription drugs and health care than any country in the world, and we have nothing to show for it in that respect. And we need to be able to, and 
let's not kid ourselves. The prescription drug companies spend a lot of money in this political, basically getting folks elected. So we should be able to negotiate drug prices. The federal government's the biggest payer that would bring things down all the way, or bring prices down for everyone. I think also that you could end surprise medical billing and out-of-network charges by the incentives that the federal government brings along. So really it is, you know, that there are about 156 million people that have employer-sponsored health insurance. I don't want to get rid the dis full disruption of 70% of the folks that are getting the health care through that. But what I do want to do is make the incentive so it's not um, so unaffordable for folks. I think you can do that by improving upon the Affordable Care Act. Thank you. Thank you very much, Leonard. Thanks, Leonard. Next question comes from Ann Ackerman. Good morning, Hi Ann. Hi there. Welcome to New Hampshire. It's good to be here. Um, my question is that there are many changes being proposed for the Supreme Court and the Electoral College. Do you think these changes are needed? And if so, what and why? Oh, and thank you for the question, Anne, because I think people are trying to figure out our way through all of this. And I'll do the Electoral College first. You know, it is a shame that it's fairly shocking that in two of the last five elections, the popular vote winner wasn't the one that won the presidential election. But from where I sit, the question ought to be, why are Democrats losing those places that we used to win, not blowing up the overall system? And we've got to turn around and say, because if we can't win back, if we can't both bring out our base and win back places like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, places that we lost in 2016, um, even if you can cobble together those 270 electoral votes, if the rest of the country doesn't connect with the Democratic Party and we can't get senators, if we can't get House members, you're never going to be able to govern again. So I wouldn't get rid of the Electoral College. I think what we need to do is make sure that Democrats are more competitive in a lot of those areas where we haven't been winning. And I think that I can do that. Secondarily, you know, I've got to argue in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. And for a lawyer, like, that's the Super Bowl. It really is. <laughs> and I want to believe that politics are out of the court's decisions and that it is an independent and separate branch of our government. But when we saw what Mitch McConnell did with the last appointment for a whole year in President Obama's terms, we know that that's not the case. So I would be open. First of all, I want to believe that even this court, as appointed, is going to recognize that august opportunity and responsibility it has to protect our Constitution, protect cases like Roe versus Wade, which has been around for 47 years. Um, I would be open to the thought of expanding from nine to 11 justices. In many respects, then, that could make up for some of essentially what Senator McConnell and Senate Republicans did. Uh, on, you know, as, as, the, as President Obama's term came to the end. I wouldn't put term limits on. I think we've seen time and time again uh, that actually justices, at times, the longer they're on, the more wise they get, and they actually understand their obligation and their responsibility. So, no, I wouldn't get rid of the Electoral College. Instead, I think we got to ask ourselves, why aren't Democrats connecting with voters that ought to be there? And two, I would be open to the possibility and prospect of expanding the Supreme Court by two, 
though I'm hopeful that we won't need it. Thank you. Thank you. Quick follow-up on that, Governor. Please. Some of your fellow candidates have called for an actual litmus test on Roe v. Wade. Uh, this is something that has not been the norm. Uh, usually that, uh, you know, they try to ask around that in those Senate confirmation hearings, don't they? What do you think of this idea of making a Supreme Court nominee declare their intent? Well, I think the challenge is, and as governor, like we have an elected judiciary. But as governor, I've appointed more than half of our overall state judiciary and two of our Supreme Court justices because of folks stepping down and things like that. And time and time again, I've sat through every one of those interviews. I want to make sure that somebody that I appoint is consistent with my values. And I know that they would like protect precedent like Roe versus Wade. My only challenge with saying is a litmus test is I think the minute a judge or judicial candidate says, here's how I'll vote on an issue, <laughs> they're not going to be able to serve. You know, you would essentially, they wouldn't be able to serve on the Supreme Court on that decision. So I will do everything I can to vet the court, my judicial candidates, to ensure that they would uphold what's 47 years now. And I wish for 47 years now we'd actually be talking about protecting and promoting women's health, not continuing to attack it. Whether I'd say it's, it's a direct litmus test, um, I want the, that judge to have the values that would uphold it. Next question comes from Nancy King. Hi, Hi welcome Nancy. to New Hampshire. It's good to be here. Thank you for being here, yes. Uh, my question is, I'm, I'm looking at the candidates, and we have so many good candidates. 37, 45. Yeah, 100, it, yeah. yeah. Uh, there are so many good ones, and like all of us, I think, here, we're all undecided. We don't know who to go for. Um, but if you are the successful candidate and you become president, who are the other candidates that you might consider for your administration? Yeah, and I appreciate that question, Nancy, because it is exciting in many respects how many good people we have running. And I think we all bring different things. Like, I do bring a perspective that's outside of Washington, D.C., a perspective where I've had to balance budgets and govern. Um, when I would be looking to assemble my cabinet, I want them to bring different life experiences and different skills and different experiences than what I've had. So there are many things uh, from a policy perspective, from a discussion and trying to incite a greater thing that I've thought the world of as Senator Warren has spoken of. Um, had the opportunity to serve with Kamala Harris as Attorney General. Actually, my neighbor to the south, John Hickenlooper, the governor, as governor of Colorado, some of his business sense. So I don't want to presume what my overall cabinet would look like right now, but I do think that there's a wealth of talent both in these individuals that are competing for this position and also others not necessarily in Washington, D.C. that could bring the great perspectives that we need. Okay, thank, you. thank you. Do you think you could name any Republicans to your cabinet? And if so, would you name one? Look, there are, and, and, and that's one of those things that, no, there is a real good possibility that um, I would, and I don't want to use their names because that could only hurt them right now at this point, right? <laughs> but, but as an example, like, so I'm currently chair of the National Governor Association, Democrats and Republicans. I was chair of the Western Governor Association. Throughout the West, uh, my neighbors to the South or the West, like, you know, I'm surrounded by Republican governors. But we figured out ways to make things work. And I think that 
especially at like the state executive level, it can't be about politics, right? Because you run into, I run into people, whether they've got health care or whether they're frustrated with what I'm doing as governor, I hear from them when I take my son to the target. It can't be about speeches. It actually has to be about getting things done to meaningfully improve the lives of people. And I think that especially from a governor's executive role and Democrats and Republicans, the differences that we have are probably a lot smaller than the similarities in as much as that we can't just wait for Washington to give speeches. We actually have to implement and make a difference. So I think that there would be a good chance that I would try to pull some folks from the other party or that had served as Republicans in. We've got about a minute left, and I'm going to throw oh, you a huge am question. Am I talking too fast? Huge too question slow? here. So water, question. water rights are really big in the West. What are you going to do when we run out of water in, in the Western United States due to climate change? Well, and oddly enough, that's what it was a water rights case that I got to argue in front of the U.S. Supreme Court on. I mean, we need to, it's another one of the reasons why we need to address climate change. Because it is going to fundamentally upset not only our economies, not only our way of life. I mean, I had 1.3 million acres burned two years ago. Biggest fire season in our state's history. I think that you have to look at the traditional sides of water law, but we're also doing a lot on res climate resiliency. Meaning that it's not just about addressing greenhouse gas, though we desperately need to do it. We also need to make from our farmers and producers to what we're doing in the woods, we need to make our geography and our terrain more resilient to the changes because we're seeing the changes. Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR, but it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. That's it, just two taps brings you back in the know. Jump right back into our questions with our crack team of New Hampshire voters. We're going to start with Kathleen Hoey. Hi, Governor. Welcome to New Hampshire. Thanks, Kathleen. Um, so I'm going to ask you something that you've actually already addressed a little bit, um, but I would like to know as president, how would you address the high cost of prescription drugs so that people can get the treatment they need rather than sacrificing their basic needs? No, and Kathleen, I don't know if it's a challenge for you. It's a challenge for people that I meet all over both my state and the country. And you shouldn't have to choose between heating your house or paying for your prescription drugs. And we've gotten this system where, and I do think part of it, and I've had a decade-long fight against this post-Citizens United world of what's happened, where decisions are made in Washington, D.C., more at the donor's request than really at the request of reflecting what the people are asking for. And I think we gotta change that. I mean, that's holding us back in so many of the areas that we'll be talking about um, today. But first, the ability to negotiate drug prices, right? So the federal government is the biggest purchaser of prescription drugs in the entire country, between Medicare and Medicaid. And once you can't even set a price by the market because you pulled the federal government out of it, it's gonna keep prices inflatedly high. I think another thing that you could do is actually, and at times you need to bring, as a former attorney general, consumer protection actions for price fixing. You need to get generics onto the market faster. 
there's some discussion about importation, importation from other mm -hmm. countries. Mm -hmm. I would consider that, but first I want these actors, these drug companies, to start actually playing by the rules and giving us a fair shake before. And I believe it can be done. Part of it's going to be the executive action, what you can do through your Department of Justice. Part of it is, like, I have never met anybody while I've been out campaigning that doesn't say either, well, there's just not enough money in politics, right? Or that uh, these drug companies who are now spending more on advertising even than they are for research and development, that they're giving us a fair shake. I think this ought to be a place where we can get both Democrats and Republicans to move positively forward on that to finally really meaningfully impact drug crisis. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much. Thanks, Kathy. Next question comes from Laura Landerman-Garber. Hi there. Hi, Laura. Welcome to New Hampshire. It is great to be in New Hampshire. Montana's, beautiful. oh, my necklace? Uh, yeah, Thank it's a beautiful you. necklace. I got it in Italy. Oh, is that right? Thank you very much. Montana's on my bucket list, so um, maybe afterward you can give us a few uh, tips on I'll where to go. I'll have you stop by the Capitol and say I hey. would love that. That'd yeah. be great. Remember me from WMUR? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on a more serious note, um, I'm just horrified, as the nation is, I, I, I believe, of the staggering suicide rates amongst our veterans as well as our active uh, military personnel. It's 20 plus a day on most reports. As president, what message would you give to our national heroes and our service yeah. families? And also, maybe even more importantly, what plans do you have for this national crisis? No. Thank you, Laura. And it is a national crisis. Um, I am also, as governor, you are commander-in-chief of the National Guard. Like, I've sent young men and women on their fourth deployment. I've gone to Afghanistan and Kuwait to visit our soldiers. I've had nine deaths of soldiers in my six years. Every one of them was by suicide. Every single one of them. And um, here's what I've done in Montana first. And look, when people make a commitment to serve our country, we have to have reciprocal commitment that we're going to take care of their health, physical, and mental when they return or when they're in active duty, that they'll have an opportunity for a job. Montana is second in the nation for uh, the number of veterans and their families. So the first thing I did when I started seeing more suicides in our National Guard is I opened up the employee assistance program, so sort of the state mental health to not only Guard members, but their entire families. And then what I saw is, you know what, there are veterans, people that have served in uniform that don't even have access to VA services. So in the state of Montana, I said, if you've ever worn a uniform for even two days, you can get this mental health services and counseling through our state program. We've turned around and said, uh, we actually uh, partnered with our broadcaster association to make evidence-based public service announcements saying you'd never leave a soldier on the field and you as a fellow soldier or airman have an obligation to keep your buddy if you see any of the signs of suicide. We've got to recognize that, and like when we expanded Medicaid expansion in Montana, as one example, 100,000 people got health care, 10,000 of them were veterans and their families. Base health care and mental health access 
has got to be part of it, and that's what I would do as president. Making the awareness of trying to get rid of the stigma of getting help is something that I would do as part of the process. I mean, this has been one, and it's not just our veteran suicide, teen suicide. The suicide that I've had in, um, with our Native American, our Indian nations, it's something that haunts me as governor, and it should haunt all of us as we're losing folks. Getting access to mental health, getting rid of the stigma, making sure that there can be the anonymity in seeking it so you don't think you might lose your opportunity for further promotion. It's all things that we've done in Montana, and I think it needs to go to scale nationally. As a psychologist myself, uh, working with teens and many military families, I appreciate that. I think uh, mental health accessibility is a, also a national crisis, especially for minorities. It, it is. It is. And it's something that, like, on not just with the veterans, Laura, I mean, we've gotten money, and we're also on the veterans part of an overall, like, we were one of six states chosen to say, how do we meaningfully address this? But for our kids, you can't wait until they're junior in high school. Like, we're putting in resiliency programs from the time they enter, like, good behavior games. It all ought to be evidence-based, making these investments for the long term that's going to give kids the resiliency to address and deal with many of life's challenges that we have right now. But thank you for the work that you do on this thank too, you. Laura. Yeah. Quick follow-up on that, Governor. Please. Uh, as a former Attorney General, you're well aware that uh, any ambitious uh, gun control measure could certainly go to the Supreme Court and be struck down under the Second Amendment. So how much more important is that mental health component to resolving our issue of mass shootings in the event that, say, you did pass something ambitious in terms of guns, that that could be uh, struck down by the Supreme yeah, Court? Yeah, and I don't, I don't think, um, I mean, the answer to trying to keep our communities and our families safe isn't all mental health. I mean, I've lowered the flags five times since Parkland due to mass shootings. Quarter of the times that have been asked by either President Trump or President Obama to lower the flags were for mass shootings. I think of my son, my youngest, uh, went, started a new school this year, sixth grade. And I'm like, Cam, what did you learn after the first week? He's like, I know where to go in case of an active shooter. No kid should have to go through that. If we actually looked at this as a public health issue, not as a political issue, a public health issue would turn around and say, we need to get universal background checks. Everybody ought to get checked before they can purchase a weapon. And you know what? The majority of Republicans and NRA members agree to that. You turn around and say, red flag laws, the ability to remove a gun, at a time, or you know that where there's an order of protection, domestic violence, the incidence of death if there's a gun in the household goes up so much more. I think that there are steps if we look at this as how could you address it to meaningfully impact folks' lives from a public health issue. That's why we have seat belts, right? At some point in life, they said, enough of this. I think growing up though, and I'm also, I'm a hunter. Um, I own rifles. I hunt with my son. Growing up, the NRA was a gun safety and a hunter's education organization. Now it's nothing more than a political organization, trying to further divide and trying to divide people when it comes to the Second Amendment. I've supported the Second Amendment. 
I've also vetoed a whole bunch of bills that I didn't think made sense for our communities or states, like things like, and I say this in New Hampshire, but like having guns in schools doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense to me. Or areas like that are getting rid of all ability to enforce federal laws. So directly to your question, Adam, I think that we do have to address mental health. But I think that just to say that how we're going to keep our communities and our families safe is mental health and not addressing some of what I'll say is the public health issues of gun safety, I think that's a cop out. Next question comes from Joan Krimlisk. Well, <coughs> welcome. It's great to be here, Joan. Okay. Um, I have yet another healthcare question, oh, but um, from hopefully a different perspective. Of perhaps um, how can Medicare be expanded and funded for individuals under 65 um, or another public affordable option implemented um, for individuals working with um, for-profit health insurance companies as well as non-profit yeah. health insurance companies. No, and thank you. And part of that I started to address up front because I think that this is part of the opportunity to really create competition and the availability for greater access. You know, that when you have 156 million people, 70% have an employer-sponsored health care. Like maybe if you were starting from anew, if you were building a system that didn't exist, you turn around, at least in my perspective, and you'd make it a Medicare for all system. But given what we have, how do we actually improve without fundamentally disrupting people's lives? I think what you're speaking of is exactly what we need. And that's a public option buy-in so that someone can go out on the marketplace and say, well, this insurance company is going to charge me this much, but I can actually buy in cheaper level from what the federal government would afford. And then what you could do is begin to lower the Medicare age eligibility over time, which gets you more and more to the point where you might have a single payer program. But doing something like that, and that's where we build off of what we've done, I think is going to afford us an opportunity for both the federal government and then private companies to play a role in ensuring that everybody has accessible and affordable health care. Thanks for the question. Thanks, Joan. Next question comes from Carolyn Morrill. Hi, welcome. Hey, Carolyn. Um, in Montana, you were able to get many programs such as your health care passed with a Republican majority in your legislation. In Washington, D.C., it is my party's way or no way. Do you think you can o overcome their arrogance and get something accomplished? And, 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 <laughs> and I do. I mean, I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't. Like, let me give you an example of how I got uh, Medicaid expansion passed the first time. Never forget, I went to this town called Shoto, Montana. 1,700 people. This is in 2015. The heart of the anti-Obamacare time. Everybody in Shoto knew why I was going to be there. Because the Koch brothers were nice enough to mail pictures with me and Barack Obama right next to it and saying, Bullocks come to your community to destroy your health care system. But I showed up anyway. Instead of telling them everything they needed, I listened. First person that spoke said, 43% of the people that walk through these hospital doors don't have health insurance. A couple other people got up, spoke about maybe, you know, that I was a socialist or something. But then the third person that spoke was the chair of the county commission. He wasn't even from Shoto. He was a rancher from Bynum, population 50. And he said to me, you know what? I was born in this hospital. This hospital saved my life two years ago when I had a heart attack. And if we lose this hospital, this town's gone. Most people 
their lives aren't about the dysfunction or politics. Everybody wants a safe community, a decent job, good public schools, clean air, clean water, the belief you can do better for your kids and grandkids than yourself. I think how you can break some of this is by recognizing that, that the values, the things that people want, aren't that far apart. To go to the Shotos all across this country, not just make it about Washington, D.C. I do believe we can break this dysfunction. It's not going to be easy. I've seen it done in Montana. I think we can do it elsewhere, but I also think that there's another part of this that when you turn around and say, you know, like tax cuts are being written when a U.S. senator says, we've got to do this to make our donors happy, when 44% of Americans wouldn't have 400 bucks in their pocket in case of emergency, or oil companies are making record profits while Republicans can't even acknowledge that the climate crisis is real. That as we do this, we also got to address what's happening with this corrupting influence of outside money, and that'll help make D.C. work that much better, too. Thank you. Thank you very much. Quick follow on the health care issue. Please. Uh, Medicaid expansion helps with rural health care, but it's certainly no silver bullet. So as president, what would you be doing to protect hospital access and rural health care? No, yeah. Particularly maternal care is one thing that we're losing a lot of in rural areas yeah. in New Hampshire. Yeah, and you end up in a place where, look, 20% of the rural hospitals in the country are at risk of closure right now. States that didn't expand Medicaid have had a six, eight, six times greater closure rate uh, in rural hospitals than those that did. So I think that you got to recognize, and just like that crusty old rancher county commission said, if you lose that rural hospital, that town's gone. There are things that you can do at the state and federal level with um, critical access hospitals to provide different funding rates. You can actually bring technology. Um, our psychologists, you know, we've actually put together programs where we do uh, psychology from the our bigger town, Billings, but it's called Project Echo, and we build case groups all the way around because we also know that primary care physicians are often the folks that see somebody that's suicidal. I think taking dollars directly and saying that there's value in having, um, our, keeping our rural hospitals alive, so different payment formulas, uh, makes a lot of sense to incentivize, because if we lose those, all of our small towns are gonna be in that much more trouble. Next question comes from Marie Mulroy. Yes, hi, how are you? Welcome. Hi, yeah, I just, um, my question for you is, if you could only highlight one issue during your campaign, what would that be? Yeah, and what a great <laughs> question, Marie. And because, you know, there's only a few issues out there. But, but that is, so I was attorney general in this case called Citizens United came out. Citizens United's a case that equates money with speech and corporations with, with people. Court made that decision. Montana had this 100-year history. At one time, all of our st local, state, federal elections were bought by uh, these copper kings, these wealthy copper barons. Mark Twain talked about Montana and said, William Clark buys politicians <laughs> like most people buy food. By his example, corruption smells sweet in Montana. And Montanans took it back. They got rid of all corporate spending in 1912. And it, elections became about people talking to people. I'll try to speed this up. I took a case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, the first one after Citizens United, went down on a 4-3 decision. Always remember what a difference one justice on the Supreme Court can make for so many things that we believe. But then even with that two-thirds Republican legislature, passed a law that said if you're going to spend money in our elections in the last 90 days, you have to disclose where that money comes from. 
Never forget I'm running for re-election in 2016 and those dark money groups, 91 days out, had postcarded our whole state in ways that my kids looked at these and said, boy, you really aren't that good a guy, are you, Dad? <laughs> but on day 90, it stopped, right? And if we can stop the Koch brothers in Montana, we ought to be able to stop them everywhere else. I think income inequality is probably the issue facing us more than anything else. I think climate change. I think making health care work. But until we address that a billion dollars of undisclosed money has been spent even since Citizens United, the Washington, D.C. is captive to the donors. And at times, that's on both sides. And we've got to address that. And I think that we can address that to fix all the other issues that we need to address. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Marie. Next question comes from Gay Jacques. Thank okay. you for your time, Governor. No, thank you. I have a 10-year-old uh, granddaughter with arthritis. Arthritis has a devastating effect on our nation. Research holds key to preventing, controlling, and curing arthritis, the leading cause of disability. Would you support arthritis research at the federal level? Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, first, thank you for also sharing that, you know, I can't imagine as a 10-year-old um, the challenges that your grand, was it a grandson? Daughter. Granddaughter is going through that you kind of expect that my parents to have arthritis, but as a 10-year-old. Yeah. And I, I think that we do need to, but in a greater sense, not just with arthritis. I mean, what we're seeing is more and more of a pullback under this administration when it comes to investing in the National Institute of Health, in investing in research and development, in investing in the opportunities to address some of these challenges that we have to make sure that your granddaughter can live a pain-free life. So I would certainly support both the investment, and I think we have to look at a greater sense of how at the federal government, we're spending less and less on really the, both the medical research and the research to keep America at the top of all of these areas. Thank so you thank, for, you. thank you. Thank you very much. Next question comes from Natalia Orlando. Oh, thank you. Hi, Governor. Thank you for being here. Um, just want to let you know I've been to Montana. It really is beautiful sky country. Or do we don't have time to talk about that. We can do that. <laughs> no, probably not. I've been to all the states. I've traveled extensively yeah. and worked everywhere. Anyways, you, I'm sorry. I don't have a health care related question, but you probably knew this question was coming. Um, in a field where you have like thousands of Democratic candidates at this point, yeah. give me an incentive to vote for you. Why should I vote for you? Yeah, well. And Why do you stand out? Thanks for the question, Natalia. Anytime. I, <laughs> I mean, I stand out, I think, because I'm literally the only one in this field that won in a state that Donald Trump won. And I think that we need to both not only bring out our base, but we also got to win back places that we lost. Anybody that thinks it's going to be enough just to be against Donald Trump, I think is mistaken. We need to actually be able to win back places we lost. We also have to give people a reason to vote for us, not just against him. You know, look, on the one hand, the economy's doing great. On the other hand, people are working harder today and making less. 40 years in America, the average worker hasn't had a real pay increase. Or you turn around and say, when I was growing up in the 70s, 90% of 30-year-olds were doing better than their parents were at age 30. Today, it's only half. The economy's not working for a whole lot of folks, and whoever cleans this, this room tonight will have paid more in taxes 
than 60 of the Fortune 500 companies last year who under the Trump tax cuts just got to walk. So I think I've been able to connect and win in those places. But I've also, this is a dangerous, from my perspective, a dangerous time of this 243-year experiment called representative democracy. We are more divided than any time in our nation's history. And forget about cable TV or Twitter. I mean, politics is dividing us at our Thanksgiving tables. And that's not the promise of America. So I also think I'm the only one in this field that's actually been able to demonstrate that you can bridge divides and get meaningful progressive policy done. I think I offer something by being outside of Washington, D.C. D.C.'s often become a place where talking about an issue is a substitute for doing something about the issue. And I think um, as a governor, as someone that, as an executive, that's actually had to do many of the things that we're talking about and do it in a way that can positively impact people's lives, I offer something significant from this field as well. Thank you. Yeah, I agree with what you said. So you're saying I got your vote. <laughs> <laughs> We got from one undecided voter to... As you noted earlier, you're on the list, probably. Yeah. That's how it works in New Hampshire. Uh, quick follow on that, though. Uh, so you have this standout quality of being elected in a uh, red state, essentially. Uh, the flip side of that, uh, right now uh, in the Democratic primary, it's important that uh, candidates represent uh, a diverse coalition of voters no, within sure. the party. And Montana's not a very diverse state. So how do you speak to and energize those diverse coalitions coming from a place like Montana? No, and I think that how I do it, and yeah, it's really a fair question. About 10% of our population in Montana are people of color, the majority of them being American Indian or Native American. So we've got to address the fact that, like the opportunity that I had growing up, being raised in a single parent household, paycheck to paycheck, that opportunity no longer exists for a whole lot of people. And for a whole lot in this country, it never ever has. And in part, it's due to everything from slavery to discrimination to redlining. So I think that what we need to do is actually look at where all of these disparities are and address them and say, if you're African-American family, you make 58% of what, oh, on average, a white family does, or you're four times more likely to die in childbirth and address those specific disparities. And the way that I'll do that is both, first of all, I show up I listen more than I talk in these communities. I learn and say, let's take action together. At the end of the day, it's up to the voters to decide what we need. But I will be one that not only goes into the communities, but tries to learn and say that we need to give everybody a fair shot and recognizes for a whole lot of people they haven't had a fair shot in this country. Social media question coming in from uh, Karen Zelengowski. Sorry, Karen, if I messed that up. Uh, who is handling the office of governor while you're running for president? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for the question, Karen. You know, it's funny. So I took my family on a five-day trip last summer where, and this isn't typical for the Bullock family, but we had to, uh, we did 25 miles on horses. Then we we're in the middle of this Bob Marshall Wilderness area for five nights on the South Fork Flathead River. One of the most beautiful, especially when you have teenage daughters who don't think you're that cool and you, know, you, you need to disconnect. One of the most amazing things that I'd ever uh, done. But I was also on a satellite phone every single day. This is a job where you can't just say, all right, I'm going to go do something else. I'm going to go be a father or even go to a kid's basketball game and you're not governor. 
Um, every single day I'm engaged, whether I'm in Helena, Montana, or here in New Hampshire as governor. Every single day I'm having phone calls with my staff and making decisions. And it's been, it has been such a humbling blessing to get to do this for the last six years. So Karen can feel more than comfortable knowing that I'm constant radio contact <laughs> in Montana and any significant decisions are made by me, not by somebody else. And I also have the challenges like, so I'll go for a few days um, and guess what? You know where I'll be by Friday evening at 11 o'clock? I'll be at home. Because I have four jobs. I have a job of governor. I have a job as a spouse, a father, and a presidential candidate. I need to do all four of those jobs at 100%. Another online question here coming from Matthew Lighthizer. What's your stance on marijuana policy? My stance on uh, marijuana policy, Matthew, and all of you too, is that, look, I think that the federal government should get out of the way meaning that right now you still have federal policies that would criminalize even what's going on in the state of Montana where we have a real good medical marijuana program. Uh, that we've seen the positive impacts of medical marijuana at the same time that we have you know, the number one death of for 50, age 50 males and below is opioids. And I think that it should be a state-by-state -state decision what you do with legalization or medical marijuana. But the federal government shouldn't be what restricts that. We've got time for one last question here. And let Just you one last on one? This is one we've asked a lot We're of We're going to do candidates. three hours then today. Okay, okay you guys <laughs> probably have things to do. Executive order to extend. <laughs> um, so talk about some uh, instance of adversity that you faced in your life that has made you a better leader. Yeah. Boy, that's a great question. Um, you know, I often say that, so I was raised by a single mom, parents divorced in grade school. Lived paycheck to paycheck. I only knew there was a governor's house in town because I delivered newspapers to it. So I've made it four blocks in life. Um, but yeah, so went to college sight unseen. The idea of college trips were well beyond and worked my way through college. I picked up my classmates' plates. I borrowed my way through law school. I think that gave me a perspective of, but somehow I still had that shot, right, of going from delivering newspapers to governor's house as a kid to raising my kids with my wife, our three kids, in it. And I think that at that level of sort of recognizing that everybody ought to be able to do better than their previous generation is something that um, has stuck with me all the way along. And I'll also say that... Uh, as part of that now and living at that house, like I'll never forget when we, when I first got elected, we moved into the governor's house and my kids were six, eight and 10. Youngest it had ever been as far as our 40 years of a governor with these kids. And my son kicks the soccer ball and it bounces off this painting and somebody goes, you know, that painting's worth $250,000. Like get rid of all the paintings, right? But, but I ended up um, in the first state, of, my first day of the state, I said, you know, 40 years since kids this age have been, you're going to hear different noises. But as leaders, we have responsibility to recognize our kids learn from our words and our deeds. And it's time we start acting like our children are watching, because they are. At some point, I believe that now more than ever before, 
And we have to ask, are we building a system that our kids can aspire to and be inspired by? At some point, this president's going to have to answer this, that question. At some point, every one of us running are going to. And at some point, you as the voters have to ask that same question. I do believe that we can bridge some of these divides and make a system better than uh, we certainly have right now. And that's why I'm doing this. All right. Governor Great. Steve Bullock, we thank you for joining us Thanks on Conversation so with the Candidate. Appreciate it. Appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you to our New Hampshire voters. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.